From high atop Fibush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fibush. We are brought to you this week by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. We are a little belated this week. We've actually been tied up with a whole bunch of work work for the last few weeks. And so a little uh, behind in getting to a show that I really hoped I would not have to do for a very long time. Uh, The show in which we remember Gary LaPierre. Gary was, of course, the voice of WBZ's morning news for four decades. He was sort of the spiritual leader of the newsroom. And he was a mentor to generations of news people who came through WBZ and learned the art of news writing. I had the great good fortune to be one of those people. I had the even greater good fortune back in 1993 when I was still just a young pup at WBZ to help put together a two-hour broadcast about WBZ's history with another WBZ legend, the great David Brudnoy. We had the chance to get Gary on the show and had the chance to talk to him a little bit about some of his early memories of working at WBZ. I was there for two years before I actually took over the morning. It was 1966 when I started the morning, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. And at, at that time when I took over the morning, the program manager said, don't you ever, ever let your picture be seen in public or tell anybody how old you are, because nobody's going to have any respect for a 22-year-old guy trying to anchor the morning. Uh, you need more maturity than that. So we, they wouldn't allow my picture and allow my age. Now I'm trying to do the same thing. I, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> For other reasons. <laughs> For a different reason, yes. Saying that because when I when I started when I came to WBZ, that first clip that you pay, uh, you played uh, was when the Beatles were coming to Boston. We were rock and roll at the time. And basically, the newscaster was was a bladder stop for the disc jockey. We were we were three minutes of news on the hour, maybe thirty seconds of news on the half hour, and the rest of it was rock and roll. Crank it up, and that's what the newsman was. But even with our reputation of being the news operation of New England at that time, that's all we were. The key ingredient was the rock and roll. And all of a sudden, over the course of rock and roll through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and up into where we are today, all of a sudden, Saddam Hussein became our program manager. Love me, Saddam, love me. That's right. And when Saddam says, uh, this is what we're going to do, WBZ seized the moment with its reputation, with its powerhouse ingredient, and said, we're going to do this. And we did it. We became an all-news operation. We became, I think, an absolute prototype for an all-news operation in this country. And yes, absolutely. I'm sitting back saying, now it's my turn. The Beatles. He covered the Beatles when they came to Boston. And uh, thanks to Ed Bruder up at uh, Man of uh, Man from Mars Productions, uh, we have a little bit of the audio from Gary covering the Beatles back in 1964. More than 600 milling persons are scrambling back and forth, hoping to catch a glimpse of the quartet. The Beatles will appear at the Boston Garden tonight, and so far the group has remained confined to their hotel room. For a direct report from the scene, here is WBZ newsman Gary LaPierre. Right now I'm reporting from the middle of Nashua Street, right next to Boston Garden, where the Beatles will be putting on their performance this evening. You can hear the cheers in the background, because every time someone sticks their head out the window of the 11th floor, everyone figures it must be the Beatles. Street next 
And of course, Gary's tenure at WBZ spanned all the way from people who had been there fairly close to the beginning, like Streeter Stewart, one of the early WBZ news icons, all the way up to a lot of members of the current crew at WBZ, people like uh, his morning co-host Deb Lawler and uh, reporter Carl Stevens uh, had worked with him for many years there. Uh, And, of course, great, great sadness uh, when the news came a couple of weeks ago uh, that we had lost him. I had the opportunity to talk at uh, some length uh, not long afterwards with my old boss at WBZ and, of course, Gary's old boss at WBZ, uh, longtime WBZ former program director Peter Casey. Peter, I want to start with you actually before WBZ because you had the, the unusual position not only of having been Gary's boss for a long time, but having run Gary's major competition for quite a few years before that. So I guess let's kind of start before BZ. What was it What was it like to be on the competition side against Gary LaPierre? You know, uh, I think Jeff Kane probably had the best uh, line about that when I worked with Jeff over at WHDH. And he was going up, and we were going up against LaPierre and Carl DeSouza and Maynard and the like. And just seemed to think that uh, the line that he had was that he probably would have had much more success competing against BZ at that time if he had tried to get his listeners by going door to door. <laughs> because cause BZ was such a powerhouse and remains today, but it was such a powerhouse at that time, and it had... It had LaPierre, it had Maynard, it had Carl DeSeuss, and it had Gil Santo on sports, and Deb Lawler, and it had all of that going for it, and it was just such a hard climb for the folks who were across town competing against them. Yeah, and I mean, all credit to WHDH, that was in its own right a phenomenal radio station in that era, too, so I mean, to, you know, there, there was, it was, it was a great era in Boston radio all around for everybody. It really was, you know, that time from the mid-70s through the, almost to the mid-80s, BZ and HDH and RKO, uh, even ITS was on it some of that time as well, Um, but especially BZ and HDH, and even EI was on at the time, the all-news radio station at that time, Uh, HDH had a pretty good run from, you know, 75 or so right through you know, 84, 85, and then, and then it got into uh, an ownership merry-go-round where it had, you know, probably six owners from uh, the early 80s through the early 90s. It probably had six or seven different owners, and I think I probably had 12 or so different general managers. So um, it was really hard to, to keep anything going or get anything new going uh, in that environment. Of course, by that time you were already over on Soldiers Field Road. And uh, what was what was it like coming in? You know, I and mean, by the time you arrived at BZ, Gary had been there what twenty five years or so, twenty twenty five years. Well, well, probably close to thirty because I got to BZ in ninety three, and Gary started at BZ with a full time job, not counting his mailroom time, uh, in sixty four. So. Uh, he started in early 64 as a reporter and then took over in September of 64 uh, as a 24-year-old, a 22 or 24-year-old, uh, doing the morning anchoring. So he had he already had almost 30 years under his belt by the time I got there. So 
he was he was on a good run. So what's it like as a manager to come in and you're face to face with this institution in morning drive? I mean, I, I guess I, I can see there there are probably some positives and some negatives to, to coming in in that situation, right? Uh, it's hard to come up with any negatives. I mean, I had met Gary a couple of times before. My news director at WHDH was Ed Bell. Ed Bell had come to HDH uh, from WBZ in 1979, uh, and I worked with Ed at HDH through through probably around 88 or so. Uh, so I had nine or ten year, good years with Ed Bell. And a couple of times, Ed and Gary would uh, meet for a beverage over at the Copley Plaza, which is right near where HDH was located at that time. And so I met Gary a couple of times over there with Ed Bell. So I had known, I wouldn't say I knew him, but I had met him a couple of times. So when I walked into BZ, meeting Gary for the first time, it already happened. Um, and so we renewed a little bit, but uh, it wasn't until I got there that I really got to know him. So what was it like? I mean, I, I have my experiences of what it was like, you know, being in the newsroom with him, working under him, learning learning basically everything I know about how to write radio news from him, what was it like from the other side down the hall managing him? Uh, Gary was unique in that I would call him uh, the most low-maintenance employee that a manager could ever have. Um, there's a lot of employees who come to you looking for a lot of different things at a lot of different times in a lot of different moods. Uh, 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 you know, I times that Gary came to me and really wanted something, because he did it so few times, I could tell it was important to him, and it was something that it was re that he really wanted. And it made sense to be able to give it to him if you were able to. Uh, so, you know, he's not one of those ones who whined and complained about every little thing. So when you have someone like that as a manager, you almost want to do things for them before they ask for it. You want to anticipate what he needs or he wants and be able to provide that to them before they even realize that they want it. Kind of like Apple with the iPhone. Mm -hmm. you know, Apple came up with this iPhone. You know, It came out with a product that people didn't know they needed or want, and now they can't do without it. So with an employee like Gary, you almost wanted to anticipate what he wanted and were able to provide it to him before he even asked it or realized he needed it or wanted it. Well, you certainly don't want to be the manager who drove Gary LaPierre out of WBZ either, I would imagine. No, you do not. And there had been those managers that were there at, at different times in BZ's history. I mean, uh, there was one time Gary almost took a job out in San Francisco um, because he just wasn't happy with the management at BZ. But uh, he ended up not pulling the trigger on that. But he went out to San Francisco and talked to them and saw the station, met with them there. Um this was during your time or earlier? No, much earlier. Okay. This is, you know, during the late 70s and early 80s. I was going to say, by by the time you and I were there, he was uh, he certainly seemed to be pretty much uh, established for the rest of his career. He got to do some interesting things. I was I was telling the story again uh, the other day of you know when he got to fill in uh, and and got to be Paul Harvey uh, on ABC and. You know, I know what that was like for me getting to getting to write for him and having that amazing experience of watching him 
in the production studio being as excited as I was at you know 22 or whatever, um, you know, watching him be excited about having that opportunity. What are what are some of your memories of some of the big things that that he got to do working with with you when you were there? Well, the Paul Harvey thing is one that stands out. I remember the first time he did it. You know, he made the arrangement with you know, the ABC Radio Network in order to do it, and you know he would you know, do the fifteen minute program at noontime, and they would play a couple of recorded Paul Harvey commercials, and the whole show was is timed out to the last second, and what we didn't realize and what Gary didn't realize at the time is when the network played the Paul Harvey commercial, when Paul Harvey recorded a 60-second commercial, sometimes it was 65, 67, 68, 72 <laughs> seconds long. And there was one of those Paul Harvey commercials that probably went for about a minute 15, and the rest of Gary's you know, writing had been timed out specifically for 60-second commercials. So that first day he did the show, he had to do the second and third segment a little bit on the fly, kind of winging it because the script he had prepared was eaten up a little bit by the extra time in the Paul Harvey commercials. Well, I, I had forgotten about that piece. I mean, there was nobody, you know, I've never seen anybody in the business who could wing it the way Gary LaPierre could just walk into a studio and, and wing it, at least in his normal environment of, you know, doing morning drive, of doing election night coverage, that sort of thing. I remember my first election night coverage. It was the preliminary mayoral uh, election in September of 1993. And Gary walks into the studio that evening. And, you know, we've anchored that morning, we'd gone home and slept or whatever, and then come back in at, you know, 6 o'clock that evening to do, you know, the evening newscast for the preliminary election. And we all sit down at the table, and Gary's got a three-by-five index card. And and he says, okay, where are the reporters? And we tell him where the reporters are. And he says, okay, what are we doing at 6? And we list our, let's go to Carl Stevens here. Let's go to Don Batting there. Let's go to, you know, with the other reporter over there. And then you'll come back and talk with Peter Mead and a couple other things. And he says, okay. So he walked into the studio with just the index card and the list of reporters in the order that we're doing them. And no script, nothing else. He just walks in and he does that whole newscast based off of, just the three or four names on the index card, but he already knew the story. He had covered the election. He already knew all the candidates, and they knew him. Uh, and he was able to anchor that whole evening's newscast just by going off the index card from the list of each reporter that we're going to use in each newscast. Incredible, which which explains in retrospect why I never needed to come in and write for him on those nights, I guess. That's right. That's and right. Now it, now it all some makes sense. Other things, some of the other things that he did, one of the things that he was really proud of is when Princess Diana passed away uh, when she was killed in that car accident, I want to say 97, maybe. Uh, We sent him over to London to cover the funeral, and that was something he was pretty proud of. I remember being in the studio with him on that, uh, back here in the studio on that Saturday morning during the live coverage of the the funeral, Uh, and he was pretty proud of that. And obviously, 9-11... Um, and I have to go back through my list of stories. You know, once once you do these stories, you kind of move on and yeah. move to the next things. But Princess Diana is one I think I know that stood out in Gary's mind. Yeah, absolutely, and his and his coverage was phenomenal. At what point did you start having conversations with him about his desire, you know, at least initially to 
start doing uh, some of the news from Florida and then and then eventually to retire? Uh, I think it was it was early on in BZ. I think when I forget which convention it was, the one of the NAB conventions that was down in Orlando. I think I think '94 was out in Los Angeles. Uh, it was one of the NAB conventions that was done down in Orlando. And so I went to that convention. So it could have been 96 or 97, 98, maybe. I don't recall. Um, convention was in Orlando. And after the convention, I just hopped in the car and drove over to St. Augustine Beach where Gary, uh, where his house was, uh, to basically look, take a look at the room and see whether or not we could put some studio equipment in there and, and whether it would be good enough to do a newscast. So I went over there and stayed there for a couple of days and then flew back to Boston and then realized that we could do that. We could put a studio in his house. So we put a little, he had basically a, a closet there with louver doors and you just kind of put some, a desk in the closet with ISDN and a microphone and some wall treatment to help out with the acoustics. And he was able to anchor his newscast from there whenever he was around and would bring, uh, an extra body into the control room to basically be the person in the studio for him to play the sound and play the commercials and such. Uh, so it took a couple extra people on the studio end, but I think it extended his, his radio life. I think it extended his time on there being able to maximize uh, his time down in Florida. So he'd you know, work up here and then, you know, go down to Florida work a couple of weeks from Florida, maybe take a week's or so vacation and then come back up here. And so he could like do, you know, two or three weeks down in Florida at a time and work one or two of those uh, three weeks that he was down there and then be off for one of those weeks. So I think it extended his, his time for, for at least a little bit longer than we probably would have because he was able to do that. I got to see that studio not long after he retired. I was down driving through there and, Stopped to have lunch with him, and he took it. He took me over. He was so proud of that setup there. He was, uh, he was so delighted at that point. He was recording commercials uh, for back in Boston from uh, from down there. So, what were what were the discussions like? You know, when, when you finally came around, um, you know, to the end of things in in '06. I mean, how how did how did that all work out in the end? Well, as you know, we had uh, uh, Jay McCoy doing middays, and Jay was the primary fill in for Gary. Um, so we had what we thought was a succession plan. Um, and Gary was pretty much, even though we were signing him to multi-year contracts continually, uh, it was pretty much a one-year thing. And you know, when he had that house down the floor in Florida and he would go down at the end of December every year, he and I would have a conversation and I'd say, you know, what are you thinking? You want to, you, you're going to do another year or two or what are you going to do? And he'd say, well, let's do another year. Let's do another year. And we'd keep doing that, and some of those years would have to sign him to a new contract, and uh, other years he would just be in mid-contract, but I'd always check in with him. So it was in uh, 2005 when I said to him, what do you want to do? You want to do another year, or what are you thinking? And he says, well, next year at this time, when I head down to Florida, so that would be end of December of 2006, he said, when I go down to Florida, uh, I want to be done. I said, are you sure? And he says, yeah. And I said, is this one of those things where you 
want me to talk you out of it and see what more we can do for you? And he says, no. He says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be done. And and that was it. And so we made plans for some sort of announcement, I think, later. I think we announced it in later, probably April of that year, that uh, uh, right around Gary's birthday, that we would that would be his last year, and come the end of the year, he would wrap up. And, and by announcing it earlier, that gave us time to see who was available. It gave us time to look across the country and find out what kind of anchor would be radio, would be available because Jay McQuaid had moved on by that time. He had right, gone and got out of radio. Yeah, he, 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 was, he was probably tired of waiting for Gary to retire, you know, and wanted to move on with his life too. Um, but I wasn't, nobody was going to push Gary out, so uh, there was no interest in that. So, you know, Jay you know, took care of his own needs and his own family and his own career and uh, decided not to wait around. And so, uh, when Gary retired, uh, we made the announcement back in the spring so that it would help me to see, you know, get some publicity to see who would be interested in taking that job. Uh, and we were able to pick up uh, Ed Walsh. And as we as we have learned and as, as we kind of could have predicted, being the guy who replaces Gary, that's, that's not an easy task. Uh, it's not an easy task, but I thought that Walsh did a terrific job. As, uh, as did I. He, uh, you know, he and I had known each other because he had worked at, in Boston. He worked at RKO back in the 70s uh, and early 80s. And he had gone on to uh, he, he worked at OR in New York. So he worked in New York for a little bit of time, and he worked out in Phoenix for a little time. He seemed to bounce back and forth. I think he did a couple of stints in Phoenix and a couple of stints in New York during his time that he was gone from Boston. And uh, uh, and he reached out and expressed some interest. He called and was at, it was probably right just before Labor Day of that 2006 year, and he said, uh, look, I was just negotiating a contract with uh, OR and thought we had a deal, and then they came and said, we're not going to renew. So he says, I'm out, and I want to see if I can throw my hat into the ring in Boston. And he was on his way up to Maine. Uh, so I said, well, why don't you come by? And I said, I know what you sound like, but come by and cut a demo here, and we'll see how you stack up against the rest of the folks who are interested, and I'll have something to play for uh, for my folks and my team and my boss. And, uh, and we ended up going with Ed Walsh. And Gary, as I recall, was nothing less than gracious in that entire handoff there. He was terrific. He could not have been nicer um, and could not have been more helpful. And, you know, that's 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 the bar that Gary set on a lot of things. And so there's no shock, no surprise how accommodating Gary was to um, facilitate that handoff. And then in later years, of course, it wasn't like his voice ever left the radio station. Every time I turned it on, he was on there either doing the top of the hour ID or doing or doing ads, which he was finally able to do after all those years, because that was part of his contract all those years, right? That he was the one guy whose voice couldn't be used in advertising, right? Uh, it, it was never in his contract. It was just a rule that we kept in place. Oh, okay. um, so, uh, it, yeah, you don't, we didn't want our main news guy. We didn't, I, I actually didn't want any of the news people doing it, but some of them would end up doing it. Um, uh, uh, 
much to my dismay because I just don't think a news person should, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, but yeah, Gary didn't, in his 44 years, he didn't do any commercials. So when he retired, uh, he was able to work out a number of deals to do some commercials. And that's where the studio in Florida, he kept the studio in Florida uh, up and running so that he could continue to record some commercials down there. And um, so he could either do them at home or do them at the station, or he could do them at his house up in the North Shore. He could do it in whatever location he was at. I saw him, I think the last time that I saw him, there was an event up in Haverhill where the, you know, the very first station that he had started at, WHAV up there, was was having a, a big anniversary party. And I was up in town and, and went over and got to sit down at dinner and catch up with, with Gary and, and with Peg. And that, I think, was 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, how how had he been in recent years? He actually been very healthy, very good. Um, there really weren't any health issues that I was aware of, and I would talk to him usually a number of times during the year and uh, usually at some point either in the fall usually in the fall uh, get together for for dinner as best we could with either with, uh, either just meet him or myself and Jonathan Pond and his wife and Peg and, uh, and my girlfriend and just kind of go have dinner so we did that a few times over recent years um, he always seemed in good shape this, this cancer diagnosis was something that came up quite recently so, so I understood. So, <laughs> looking back, you know, I'm thinking back on, you know, what everything in my career that I've drawn on from having worked with him. What, what are you going to look back on? You know, what are the biggest takeaways that you have of of what you learned about doing radio from from working with Gary Lapierre? Uh, you know what? There's a phrase that still kicks around the newsroom. And that is, it's time to make the donuts. <laughs> and that, obviously, you know, it comes from an old Dunkin' Donuts commercials. But, you know, Gary's rule is, you know, when it's time to go on the air, it's time to go on the air. Nothing else matters. Nothing else gets in the way. So when it's time to be in that studio and on the microphone, that's where you are, and that's what you do, and you block out everything else. Nothing else matters. So it's about setting priorities when you're in a newsroom and what needs to be done when and how do we get there, and how do we do it, and when it's time to make the donuts, it's time to make the donuts. Even even if Richard Simmons happens to be wandering down the hall at that very moment? Exactly. Which which happened more than once, as I recall. It did. Yes, it did. But, yeah, he was he was great. And I guess we should do, you, you mentioned Gil very briefly, and I, I want to touch, too. I mean, that was, you know, not just to have a Gary LaPierre in the newsroom, but then to have that interplay both on and off the air with, with Gary and Gil together. You know, I look back on that, too, and, and my God, we didn't know how good we had it. You know, it, it's, you know, every morning show on every radio station in the country looks to build and develop chemistry amongst their morning team. And every afternoon show, every program director from every station that has an afternoon show always looks at their afternoon show and says, why can't we have the chemistry in the afternoon that we have in the mornings? Um, and mornings is just unique. You're all you're all in that same 3 o'clock in the morning foxhole. So you share something that nobody else in the other day parts shares and that you all have to get up at this ungodly, crazy, awful hour of the morning or the night and get up and not only go to work earlier than everybody else, 
but re be ready to hit your stride and hit your prime of your day before most people are awake. Uh, and that gives you something in the morning. That's that foxhole that I talk about, that everybody is in that same thing together and everybody understands it. And every little bit of time in the morning helps uh, makes a difference. Every little minute makes a difference. And that builds the chemistry and, and also their friendship. Uh, Gil and Gary had a good friendship from when they both started there in the 60s. And it continued on until uh, right up until the right up until Gil passed away. They were still good friends. That was truly, truly amazing. I still remember one morning, not long after I got moved to mornings, and I'm sitting there, you know, it's 4.30 in the morning or whatever, and I'm not a coffee drinker, so I'm sitting there with my can of Coke, trying to keep my eyes open. I look over, and I think Gil had just come in, and I looked over, and I said, Gil, Gary, you guys have been doing this for, when when, when do you get used to this? And the, the two of them just looked at each other, and, you know, Gary got that twinkle in his eye, and said, you never do. <laughs> and, it, and it's true, you yeah. never do. I have discovered that doing morning radio on and off, you, you you never do, and yet I find if I'm going to be on the air at 5 a.m., I just I try to channel my inner Gary, and just okay, I got to be awake. You're right. Time to make the donuts. Time to just tell people what's what's going on. And everybody finds their own method of dealing with it on a week to week basis. Um, some people are good at you know going home and going right to sleep. Some people want to take a, mat, a nap in the afternoon. Some people don't sleep at all and they just stay up. Um, for me, when I did mornings across town, uh, I, would, yeah, I would usually get into bed by 8.30 or 9 o'clock and get up at 3. Um, and then Wednesday would be my, Wednesday afternoon would be my catch-up on sleep afternoon. So I'd get home from work on Wednesday around noontime, and then I'd just go to sleep for the rest of the day and then get up the next morning. I figured Wednesday got me through Thursday and Friday, so I can always tough through a couple of days at it, um, but I was not good at napping because if I took a nap on a Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, then I was kind of in a fog the rest of the day, so I tried not to sleep four days a week and then yeah. just use Wednesday as my catch-up on sleep day. Sounds, sounds like a good policy. So for people who are wondering, too, what is what is Peter Casey up to these days? Peter left the station, he left DZ right around Thanksgiving of 2017, so it's been a little bit more than a year. Um, I'm doing a little bit of consulting. Uh, a bunch of years back, I got involved with um, a gentleman, a professor over at MIT who teaches a class in business continuity and crisis communications. So uh, for a number of years, I've been uh, a participant and one of the lecturers, one of the guest lecturers at that MIT class that it's just a, a short week-long class in the summer, but it, it got me interested in the crisis communications aspect of media and media relations and business continuity. So I'm spending a lot of time focusing on that. Uh, I'm also still doing a little bit of consulting. I picked up some consulting last year, and I'm working with the folks at Bloomberg Radio and helping them out a little bit. So I, I kind of keep my hand in radio just a little bit by doing some consulting, but Pretty much just working for myself. 
My thanks to Peter Casey for taking some time to talk with us on the Top of the Tower podcast. I suspect we'll be talking about Gary LaPierre some more at some point on the podcast uh, because he was just that important a figure in the history of Boston radio. And for those of us uh, who had the joy of working with him at WBZ, he, uh, he really really will be missed. That's it for the Top of the Tower podcast. We're going to try to get on a more regular rotation as we uh, make our way closer to the big NAB show that's coming up not much more than a month from now in Las Vegas. We will have news uh, maybe as early as next week's installment about the uh, big broadcasting club party that takes place there on Sunday night that uh, we are proud to be a part of here. And of course, we're going to be talking uh, about some of those other big changes that have happened while we've been uh, taking a little hiatus from the podcast Uh, including that enormous cumulus deal. We'll have more on that coming up in the next edition of the podcast. The Top of the Tower podcast is brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. We'll be back here with the Top of the Tower podcast on FiveBush.com.